Welcome to I Love My HBCU Question Mark, the podcast where we express our undeniable love for HBCUs, but where we are also not afraid to address a few tough questions. So, sit back, learn a little, love a lot, and rep your HBCU. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of I Love My HBCU Question Mark. And if you are watching and not just listening, you know I have, Lord, I have called Mr. Blow. I'm going to call him Charles, but I've called Mr. Blow so many different things. One of them is a fine specimen of a human being. How are you doing this morning, Charles? Well, thank you for having me. Um, I'm not the first person to say that, um, for those of us, some of us stalk your Instagram and I'm one of them, is you are becoming a budding fashionista in addition to, yes, yes. If you saw the look on his face, he's like, no, I'm not the only one to say that recently, am I? I don't, I don't know. I, I, I don't, I don't think about it in that way. I mean, uh, um. I believe in freedom of expression and it comes in all forms. Uh, and I was for long before anybody knew me as a writer, I was a designer. Uh, as a graphic designer, I was the art director of National Geographic Magazine. And so I experienced the world visually uh, to a large degree. I was trained to do that professionally. Yeah. And so I, I love. I love the design as a function. So I taught my staff about design, about color theory, about shape, about how that influences the way we think and how our brains process shapes and forms and measure things. And so me as a person, I show up in the world with all of that as a person who crafts language, but also a person who appreciates all of the incredible designers who are doing things in the world, whether they're architectural designers, furniture designers, I don't care what it is because I understand the language that they are using because I was using that language myself. That makes sense. That makes sense. But we still love your fashion. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to be reductive in any way whatsoever, but we, we talk about your fashion when we watch your Instagram, just so you know. So keep it up. You, you have a beautiful G that you made um, that you're wearing on your chest, um, where the S Superman would be. There's a G for Grambling State University. You are an alum of Grambling State University, and that's only one of the reasons why I wanted to have a conversation with you. Um, I did not know that Grambling was your alum. And I, again, I've, I've followed Charles Blow for quite a while, and I did not know that. Um, is it something that just doesn't come up? as often or is it something that isn't necessary for you to have that boldly out there it's in my bio and so every time i give a speech it's, in it's my there bio. so how do we gloss over it i think it's because we see you bigger than 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 just the university you went to um okay give us one favorite memory that you had at grambling oh that's 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 kind of an impossible question I will say this, though, um, I went to a historically black high school. It was actually the first black college in North Atlanta, be founded before Grambling. Uh, 
and okay. it's beautiful. So it's still the same school on the same bit of land, which is incredible since it started in the late 1800s. So it's one of the oldest high schools in all of Louisiana. And so, and it's black. Wow. And there, the, one of the things that I remember most is that they never told us no. We would say, oh, this is, you know, we should do this. And they would just, they would never say no. They'd say, how are you going to do it? And then they'd just prod us to get it done. Um, that extended to Grambling. They, my professors in the mass comm department never said no. They just said, how you, I said, you know, I, I want to start a magazine. They didn't say, we don't do that. We don't have one. It can't be done. I'm tired. They said, how are you going to get that done? And I said, I don't know. They said, okay, well, you need advertisers. You need to figure out how the printing press, how, you know, the local printing press, how it runs, when they could get just this on there to work it. And they just kind of prod it and they made it happen. And I left Grambling with a sense of infinite possibility that there was nothing that I couldn't do. Um, but also that there was never a sense of insecurity. Every space I had walked into, a black person was the smartest person in that space. I always assumed that any space I walked into, a black person, me, could be the smartest person in that space. I never entered a space feeling I'm the only one, they're judging me, do I, do I belong here? Have I earned it? Do they think I'm affirmative? None of that was in my head, zero ever. And, I, and there were a lot of people with much stronger academic pedigrees as, as judged by society from the Ivies or wherever. And I realized they had read so many more books than me, but they were racked with so many more insecurities than me. And I call that kind of being covered with racial scarring that you could, they had been so up close in the battle, always fighting because they were the only one in the class. They were only one in the AP class. They were the only one, or they had, you know, they were in a school where there were so few black people that they had to form a black student union. I always thought like a black student union is the craziest thing to me, but I, but it makes total sense that there are only a few of you, but at Grambling or at Morgan State, you like the, the student union is black because that's the only people here. So it, it, it doesn't, it didn't track to me, but, but, but it, but Grambling gave me that gift. So Charles, but you've post Grambling, it sounds as if you've walked through life that way, at least based on observation, which I think is a blessing. I, I, as somebody who has been in academia for the better part of uh, almost 20 years now, I don't find that to be the case for a lot of our students, even those that might have started off with 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 their foundation being at an HBCU. What do you think the different difference is that you you get to walk through life that way or you've walked through life that way, but they don't. I, I still see that cover of insecurity for somebody that was was had a foundation with nothing but blackness around them. You know, I can't, you know, I, I, it would be impossible for me to speak for another person. Of I don't course. know another person's walk in life. I can only describe mine. Um, and I can't say that everyone who went to my high school had the same experience. I'm sure they didn't. Not everyone who went to Grambling and graduated in my class had the same experience. I'm sure they didn't. Sure. It was, it was the way that I viewed the world was part of it. It's a personal view of the world. And 
what I saw as possible for me or what or was what the infinite possibilities I always talk about for me, I that's just the way I saw it. I did not um, this may sound strange or I don't know what it maybe it's healthy or not healthy. I never thought I would lose. Ever. I just I I fi- I thought I was I was going to win. And even if there was a setback, it was just in service of the win. So I would look at somebody would not accept me to something, not give me the job or whatever. And I think, okay, that is something I must be meant to learn something from this because of course I'm supposed to win and I will win eventually. So let me figure out what I'm supposed to learn from this setback. So I never took a setback as permanent. No, no failure or no uh, inability to reach a mark is a permanent weight. It is in fact, a learning experience if you make it that. So I always believe that. I also grew up incredibly poor in the middle of nowhere, and I was happy there. So I was willing to take more risks because I always thought, if it doesn't work out, I'll go back to where I came from, and I'll be happy there because I was happy before I left. We didn't have anything, and if I didn't have anything again, I'd still be happy because I was already happy. So I took a lot of risks in my career, uh, and, and people... Think of, even when you say the word risk, they don't process it as risk. They say, oh, this person reached out, but if you, if you stretch your neck out, you're gonna, it's going to work out for you. There is no guarantee that it's going to work out for you. That is, in fact, what risk-taking is. There is as likely a possibility you will fail as that you will win. And you still do it. That's the definition of a risk-taker. And so I've done that a lot. I've gone places, didn't know if I was going to work out. I've left a job, had no job lined up. I had no idea what I was going to do, but I knew I was like, this is the right thing for me to do right now. And that is the quality that's going to make or break people. And in fact, it can break you. But I would rather have taken the chance and be broken than to have never taken the chance and be grinded under the stone. So you saw me smiling a lot while you were talking, and I'll tell you why. Um, You came to Morgan State University as a presidential speaker series guest. Um, Oof, not good with numbers. I'm going to go with about 10 years ago. Uh, Might be a little longer than that. And um, I loved the fact that you thought I was a student. Um, You don't, you, I don't think you remember this and it's perfectly okay. We were in uh, the the James E. Lewis Museum. That's where the reception was. And you you remember, lovely, okay. (laughs) At the time, I was the chair of the Department of Communication Studies. So it was my role to walk in with you and have a conversation with you. Mind you, this is a gentleman that I've been- You did, you did, you did. You did. You did. You you may not recall what my response was, but I was perfectly okay with you thinking I was a student because um, most people don't know this about me. I I suffer with a lot of anxiety. So I'm like, why would you pick Tosin to be the one that has to guide Miss Charles Blow through this space? You know what you said to me? You don't remember, so I'll tell you. You said, we can just both stay back here in the background and just be nervous together. You don't remember that, but it was the sweetest thing. And I have been 
a slightly obsessive fan of yours since then. Um, I, why do I share this? I share this because when I bring your name up with some of my students, and, and so hopefully you'll remember this, that when you walked into the auditorium and it wasn't as packed as it should have been, right there on the podium, you did say, this is a shame. This is a shame that there aren't enough students literally on every side of this wall listening to what you have to share because what you had to share was pretty important. You took us through some really good, important steps of history and politics and so on and so forth, but you did it with such grace. You weren't, you weren't scolding them. You just were like, how could you not? I, I came in from New York for this guys. How could you not come and listen to some gift that I'm about to give you? Why am I bringing all of this up? I'm bringing all of this up because I hear a lot of people, and you may or may not read them, I, I don't know, you tell us in a second, um, talk about how serious you are, talk about how um, um, Charles is always referencing the, the, the gravitas and the gravity of A, B, C, D, and F. And the person I remember is somebody who is kind and compassionate, somebody who has fervor behind what he believes, and it's, it behooves you to listen to the fervor and understand the passion behind that. Um, and, and with that, I have to bring up, I wrote this down intentionally before we started. I said, I said to my students that whenever you, you see persons like Charles Blow on MSNBC, you read his column and you just hear all the serious, they deal with serious matters and you only hear the serious things that they, 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 they talk about. Go back to the mug that his kids gave him when they had traveled, where the mug said, no matter what life throws at you, at least you don't have ugly children. And the laughter that emanated from him lets you know that these persons are full persons that must be taken in their fullness. So um, I, to every student that's listening, I hope you hear all of that about the types of persons that we speak to. Okay. Charles, I want to put you through a 67 seconds rapid fire segment. I'm going to throw as many questions at you and you'll give me the answer that first comes to mind. And they're going to put the timer on somewhere. <laughs> Describe your HBCU experience in one word. Uh, edifying. Edifying. If your time in college was a song, what song would it be? It would probably be something unmentionable from NWA. Okay, okay, I'll take that. <laughs> On a scale of one through 10, how good of a student were you? Uh, I was uh, eight or nine. Eight or nine, eight or nine. Shout out your favorite professor and what did they teach? Oh, uh, Miss Lee and she taught uh, visual design. Visual design. Did you have a college? Okay. Did you did you have a college roommate? Several. Several. Pick any of them. What would you have wanted to tell any one of them, but didn't? Uh, it would be my first one, which is my brother. Thank you for letting me move into your raggedy rundown trailer. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I love that. Okay. Um, if you remember, what was your best meal in college? Oh, uh, Griff's Burgers. 
Griff's Burgers. Do you know that the, the, the one answer I get from that from co current college students, take a wild guess what the answer is when I ask them their, their favorite. So this is an on-campus meal? It doesn't have to be. Oh, sick. Yeah, I don't know what it would be. What is it? They always give me fried chicken Wednesdays. It's become a thing oh. at most HBCUs now where you have fried chicken Wednesdays. So I, I always ask alum because I'm curious to see, did they have that then? And it doesn't have to mean that it was served on campus. Even the ones where they don't have the fried chicken on campus, they go looking for fried so, chicken. It's very interesting because first of all, I only ate in that cafeteria one semester and I was like, okay, I'm on I can't do this, okay. I, 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 it, it, it was just unremarkable. I, it wasn't that I wasn't, didn't want to eat on campus. I just didn't want to live on campus. And then when I did live off campus, there was, there were two very important <laughs> fried chicken places right off of campus. And one was Spivey's, which was, everybody liked, was the true hole in the wall. And I was like, I can't go in. I don't know what that is. That's, that's like a death trap. And then there was the other one, which was Tasty's, which used like a, a pound and a half of seasoning salt for each piece of chicken. So like, it was like high pretension in a wing setting you up literally like that's the one you liked lord have mercy why do you call them important you said two important chicken places why were they important because they were central to the student life so everybody went to them got everybody it. went to them got it got yeah. it okay okay um you went to grambling state university i love asking people what how they selected their university how did you make that choice uh a, a recruiter made it, helped me to make it. So okay. I had gotten scholarships to uh, two other Louisiana schools, Louisiana State University, which is the biggest school in the state, um, uh, and Louisiana Tech University, both uh, majority white schools. And the recruiter at Grambling knew that. He called me into his office and he says, Louisiana Tech doesn't need you. LSU doesn't need you grambling Nietzsche. And what he was saying was, you, we need you, your brain, your personality in community with your people, that you're going to learn something from that. And they're going to learn something from that. And that, and that altruistic move that you make, that, that, that choice that you make will pay off for the community. And I accepted that challenge. And I, and he was absolutely right. I, people may have learned something from me. I learned something from that. I learned something from the experience. I grew from the experience. My, my pause is drawn out of when I hear a lot of people talk about their experiences at their HBCUs and the intentionality of the choice, be it theirs or somebody else's for them, um, it was never a mistake, no matter what. Um, and that weighs heavy on me. I, I, it weighs heavy on me. Um, and, and I say that because our choices make us who we are. And um, it is a gift that we can't go back in time sometimes and change those. And then the outlook that one takes from um, what those choices have, have created for us also matters. Um, Charles, you are one of, I think, uh, 
the most intriguing political voices that um, I tell my students to listen to. Um, you don't know this, but um, our platform will be um, um, presenting um, a politics and civic engagement summit in April of this year called Generation Next Thought Leaders Summit. And it's important for me to share with you how we came about that before I ask you to please share with us what I think students need to hear with regards to this climate that we're in. Um, <laughs> um, I, I, I'm lucky, I get to speak to students a lot and I challenge them to simply be themselves when they're talking to me. And they've shared it all. They've shared that um, if the election was today, they would vote for Trump. Um, they've shared that um, don't assume that we are dem all Democrats. Um, but they won't share that generally with the world. So I said to myself, what if we had something whereby it's not on anybody's campus and we invite elected officials to come and listen to what the students have to say. Um, let's experiment and see if it works. And that's what April 30th is about. And so I asked them to fill out a survey on what national issues impact them the most. I was slightly surprised when um, they, they came up with four big ones and that's immigration, uh, US domestic welfare, the US economy and systemic racism. Um, one of your videos, um, I won't quote you accurately, and I apologize ahead of time, but one of your videos on Instagram, um, you, you were responding to what people, you were responding to what people might think about those who are not sure yet about not voting for, for, for Republicans. And if I'm, if I'm wrong, please, please correct me, but that's what I got from the video. But, but the part that was important about that video is when you said, but as opposed to writing people off for the stance that they've taken, why don't we try to find out why that is the stance that they've taken? And that's really what I, what I want to lean in with you is the importance. I want you to share a little bit more than what you shared on, 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 on the short clip on Instagram, a little bit more about the importance of having especially this generation heard as they are dabbling into politics, because we're going to have a lot of our elected officials doing the beautiful pit stop at our campaigns very soon. Um, they're gonna tell us what their agenda is, and then they're going to walk away without having heard what the students have to say. But then we quickly turn that around and say, oh, the students are apathetic. I'm going to be quiet. What are your thoughts? Well, I think that I have to separate two things. One is what politicians need to do, which is they need to engage, make people feel better, like they're listening to them. Then there is me, the person who is engaged as a citizen and an observer of the, of the culture. And that person is sick of hearing the foolishness. Uh, I, when people say things that they think sound enlightened and moral, mm. but they are stupid and dumb and self-defeating, it is not for me to entertain that and pretend that you are making a valid point. I am sorry that physics, that civics failed you yeah. or was never taught to you in your grade school. And when you are just now entering politics as a voter, you are upset because this is the system that you find yourself in. Yeah. But, but throwing a tantrum because 
I don't like this system that I find myself in. And how did they get this way? Uh, basic civics would have taught us that, but you know, our schools are getting way, getting rid of physics, civics as we just lean into whatever the kids can do to pass the test. So they lean more to math and, and reading. So, but don't say anything dumb to me and expect me to, to validate your feelings. Don't say to me that things would have been better in the Middle East under Donald Trump when they, when I know full well, they would have been worse and will be worse. And even if you care, it definitely, if you care about people living in Gaza, that place has to be rebuilt. It has been basically wiped out. Do you think that Donald Trump is going to do that? I mean, it's, it's ridiculous concept. They say, oh, well, they're just the same. They're pretty much the same. I don't, there's no moral high ground in you saying that. And it is not an enlightened position. And you can try to pretend that it is, but I don't have to go along with your pretense. You can say that the economy was better then, but that's just a lie, right? Uh, he didn't close things down because he was letting your parents and your aunties and your uncles die unnecessarily from COVID. And then when we finally got enough sense to close more of it down, that interrupted the supply chain, which led to higher inflation. But I trade that that higher inflation any day for people still being alive. Alive. Don't say that he gave you, you know, sent out Trump checks when this man fought tooth and nail with the rest of the Republicans to prevent those checks from being cut because there, it was only the Democrats who were trying to get them cut. And when he lost and realized he was going to have to send these checks out anyway, he insisted on putting his name on the thing that he had fought against. And so that's why they had Trump's name on them. That's why they are Trump checks. I personally, politicians have to do a different thing. I personally don't have to sit with this. I personally don't have to entertain uh, idiocy. I personally don't have to make you feel good mm. about a horrible position that you're taking that has no connection to civics, has no connection to history, and has no connection to the furtherance of peace and security for people who look just okay. like you. There is a plan right now called Project 225. Many of the people that I see taking this so-called moral positioning, I can't because of morally, I can't do this. Many of them are women, queer people, marginalized people saying this. Well, Project 225 makes sure that Queer people, women have fewer rights if Donald Trump steps foot back into that Oval Office. And you then want to say, well, I I'll protest. These are the same people who are protesting now. One of the, th the stipulations in Project 225 is that on day one, invoking the Insurrection, Insurrection Act to put federal troops into the streets to prevent you, you from, from protesting. I'll say one last time, I will not pretend that what you could, what you are pretending is a moral positioning is legitimate and I won't make you feel good about it because it's dumb. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> have we failed then? And my answer is yes, but I, I wanna hear your thoughts on this. Have we failed then in educating 
those who have this moral high ground, for lack of a better phrase, on how this really works? I, I think it absolutely fail uh, in that way. It, and, and also, I acknowledge the fact that it's horrible to be caught in a system where you only have two parties, but that's where you are. That's where you are. Just because I don't like it doesn't mean I can wish it away. I don't like that you don't have other choices for president, but that's where you are. Just because I don't like it doesn't mean I can wish it away. Uh, so health, I don't understand how this broke down where people don't understand that because when I was 18, 19, 20, 21 in college, I was voting for people. I didn't love anybody. That wasn't my test. This is my best friend who has all of my priorities on their plate. I'm voting in defense because that's what this is the system I have. Absolutely. So what am I going to do is to make sure that the system harms me least and benefits me most. Not just me personally, but me, my community, my family, my little town. That was what is important to me. None of the candidates that I had a choice among were going to give me all the things that I wanted. None of them were conducting foreign policy in ways that I always thought was the right and proper thing because the world's super complicated and politics is super complicated and those things collide and they're never going to just say, okay, this is just the moral thing to do and this is the only thing we're going to do. It's just not how it works. So I was working with what I had and the choices I had. But the last thing I was going to do is say, I will put the piece I'm of tape just... over my mouth myself. You don't have to silence me. I'll do it. Give me that tape. That sounds crazy. What do you think the elected officials should be doing? Listen, they do have to. Politics is a is a is part feelings, part policy uh, game. So they do have to, you know, make people feel heard, respond in whatever way they can, and also listen. Don't think, I don't think I'm saying that politicians are perfect people. I don't trust any politician. I don't care what the DRR, whatever I they have on their chest. I don't care. To be a politician, you have to touch a lot of dirty hands. You have to compromise a lot of things. And to reach the highest heights of politics, like a presidency or a Senate position, you've shaken a lot of dirty hands and, can, and spent most of your time just raising money and not actually executing policy. You've made a lot of compromises just to keep the seat. So I'm not putting my all my eggs in the basket of any one of them as if I like them, but they have to make citizens believe that they are engaged mm -hmm. that way. So they have to do the thing. I understand that because I understand politics because I understand civics. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, I don't understand how people don't get this. Um, so they have to do different things. They have to listen, even to I'll things that don't make sense. I'll take that. I'll take that. You, you, I, I was lucky enough to watch um, Fire Shut Up in My Bones um, when it was out um, in, in New York specifically. But I, I'm really intrigued by your new work. And um, I'm going to call it a theory, the theory that I've heard you talk about um, based on The Devil You Know, uh, South to Black Power, um, and my students haven't heard of it, and I'm shoving it down their throats intentionally. Um, 
Oh, and I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that um, I didn't entirely agree with you and I didn't entirely disagree with you. Um, and somebody, I don't remember her name and I apologize, but Chicago, it was a, the, the lady you were speaking to and there we go. So you know exactly who I'm talking about. Um, I, I'm kind of with her ever so slightly. Talk a little bit. And you, you again, I've watched it, uh, but some who are listening and watching this may not have. And, and I just, to, to the best of your ability, Talk about the theory. I'm calling it a theory, and I apologize if I hope this is not offending you. So, uh, us going back south. Yes, I believe one of the uh, uh, quickest, most important ways to political power is to attain uh, more state power. States control many of the things that Black people care most about. Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. Largely written on the state level. vast majority of people who are incarcerated, incarcerated on state level, they control, have a lot to say about educational policy, health policy. They dole out billions of dollars in contracts. So it makes a lot of people wealthy. We black people just don't generally get much of that state contracting wealth. So I believe state power is a path. Uh, and I know that uh, most American black people live in the South today, but Uh, before the Great Migration, 90% of Black people lived in the American South. And in the years right after the Civil War, three Southern states were majority Black in Mississippi, South Carolina, and there were three or four others that were within eight percentage points of being majority Black. And that generated tremendous power for Black people in that era. That's the reason that Mississippi gave us our first two Black senators and sent scores of Black representatives to their statehouse because they had the power to do it. There was an open seat in Mississippi when Mississippi was being readmitted to the union in the Senate. And the black people said, we want it. And they said, okay, because they had 60% of registered voters in Mississippi were black people. And so what I say to, uh, in this book and in this film is if black people simply reversed the great migration or many of them went back to this states from which they fled, that same power could be accessed yeah. today. And we see that in places like a Georgia where I uh, reverse migrated to um, because black people led the coalition that flipped the state from one political party to the That's other. Nice. But it also led the coalition that elected two senators. It was the first time a black senator was ever elected by a coalition led by black people in the entire history of the country. And they didn't just elect one senator, they elected two. And when they tried to to, to, to um, suppress their votes in, in 2022, and they put Raphael Warnock back up on the ballot, black people came out again to say, you can't take away from us what we demand we have, which is power. Yeah. So I believe that state power is available, particularly in the Southern states where you already have incredibly large percentages of black people none of those northern and western states will ever have the percentages of black people that these southern states have and they will never ever be majority black or even close to it you're not wrong um if we just look at it theoretically and factually as well i think the blockage that some people like me have is 
whether we like it or not, part of it is emotive. Um, and, and just visualizing and reconciling what was and what is and what could be. But you know, again, if one just looks at it factually, that's why I said, I do agree with you. Um, but when I tap deeply into my emotions, it stops me ever so slightly in my tracks. Like, would I make the move? Because um, that's that's the question. It, it becomes individual. Would one right. make that move? But the beauty of it is to always remember that most people don't migrate in any migration. Most black people did not migrate in the Great Migration. Most black people stayed in the American South, even with all of his. That's true. Right. Uh, and the second thing is to remember is that the reverse migration is already happening. It's already happening. Well, before I said a word. <laughs> People were already making this choice. They didn't need any help. They didn't need any cheerleading. They'd already started to make the choice to go back to the American South. I'm just adding a boost to it. I hear you. I hear you. I, I look forward to seeing what will um, become of it um, politically in different spaces. I'm going to, I know this is, this is, I, I took you straight into politics, even though this is, I love my HBCU question marks. I'm going to bring it back to HBCUs. Um, <laughs> You've got three amazing kids. Um, I, I followed your daughter, which was fencing. Um, none of them attended HBCUs, right? Am I right or wrong? Right. 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 Okay. Um, no parent would ever push an HBCU or any college and any um, 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 child. I, I don't think um, any one of us would. But I am curious. Let's I, let's I, play. I, I you did. You did. I, I made sure that he included HBCUs in his uh, applications. Okay, lovely, lovely. So here's here's the game I want to play. They're not none of them went. However, where would you think each one of them would have matriculated at an HBCU? If and you can't pick Grambling. Well, that's impossible. You can't bring pick Grambling. It's not impossible. Possible. Okay. Well, I'll, I will say this. So. Uh, my oldest son, the two younger one, younger ones is, is uh, a different story because they were athletes and both recruited to go to schools that they went to. So it wasn't like the choice. The choice was among the recruit the recruiting. Okay. Uh, but the older one, he was not recruited for, for, for sports. So he was purely academic. So that was a real choice. So I okay. made him. Um, uh, I knew that he's a northwestern, northeastern kid. Okay. And uh, so he, I had him apply to Howard, and he had we we had friends here in um, and his godmother's here in Atlanta, so we would come here a lot. So I had him apply to Morehouse. Okay. Okay. So he applied to both those schools, so he could have, uh, they could have, you know, it could have been a thing. So I'm picking him for Howard because I'm a Howard alum. So you're not playing the game, but I'm playing the game. So I'm picking him for Howard. It was very interesting to me. Um, how the those schools responded to him. Tell um, us more. Yeah, it was it, it, Howard sent a, a, a sheet that said, you know, these scores fall into this range of scholarships. And that was like the only thing and Morehouse said no we'll put him on a wait list for a something a, I think it was a scholarship whatever it was and I'm thinking like this kid has gotten <laughs> this kid has gotten into mm. 
Princeton, Yale, uh, and Penn. What does this wait list mean? I'm, I'm trying to understand, like, just objectively, not just because it's my kid. So I was like, okay. And I think kids in his age, you know, they're impressionable. They, if he, I brought him down to tour Morehouse. We couldn't get a person to do it. We didn't know how to figure out how to do the tour. So we just showed up at the campus. Because I was like, we have to tour because you can't, I don't want you to just get tours at these predominantly white mm, schools. Mm, I want mm. you to, if you're going to say yes or no to this school, I want you to at least have seen it. And it was just, it was just a very difficult circumstance. But I still hadn't written it off. But then the, you know, Yale had this weekend. I think they just took him up there and let him party. And he thought that was the best thing ever. <laughs> so they out, they out partied them, which is crazy to say for HBCU. I think the HBCUs would out party anybody. But yes. Yale out partied them and, and they got him. We we listening listening to your story, um, and I say this with with the love and pride that I have for HBCUs that we do need to do better, um, because it's not the first time I've heard that story. I've heard it most quite recently from the son of a colleague who is at um, um, UNC Chapel Hill now, and it's quite interesting that it's the two schools. And I don't think it's it's unique to them. I really don't. But it's the two schools that you mentioned as well. And he, because his father said, you you handle it yourself. So he was looking at the score sheet and said, what, what does, what is this? I don't, what is this? And like your son, this gentleman literally had $1.2 million in scholarships from everywhere else you could imagine, including the Ivies. And so he's like, come on, people, this, this doesn't make sense to me. So we, we need to do a little bit better because I think we are missing out on some pretty brilliant human beings um, coming through our walls because of that. Charles, um, end, end this episode for me. Um, because of my experience at my HBCU, I will not. Finish that sentence for me, please. Oh, I will not. Yes. Let anyone um, dictate to me my worth because I know it. Charles, I think that's just you. I, I think that's just you. I um I, I I'm I'm sure HBCUs will be grateful that you're giving them that credit. I think that's Charles Blow more so than just the HBCUs. Um, um this really is my last question. Why do you love HBCUs, Charles? Um, well, for me, you know, it was an ex it was a cultural learning experience even more than it was an academic learning experience. I got to be in community with uh, black people from all over the country, and uh, and I got to be in community with people who were struggling, both financially, academically, those who were brilliant, uh, those who were wealthy, and when you are in community where not, there's not so much sameness, but the sameness is the cultural experience itself, you you come to understand like, we rise together, we fall together. And so that is one of the reasons why, even though in corporate America, 
they'll kind of put you against each other, like compare you to the other black person. Or I've always resisted that. If as writers, they'll try to compare me to this black writer. No, no, no. I, you compare me to all the writers or none, uh, because I will not be in competition with that person because that is not how I was brought up in school and in college. We were taught, I'm rooting for you because you are rooting for me. We all rise together. You achieve, I clap for you like it was mine. And I believe that I will always do that. And I refuse to let this society try to pit the cream of the crop as they see it against each other to fight for the crumbs. Wow. Charles, thank you. Thank you for spending part of your Saturday morning um, with us. And I love my HBCU question mark. And to those who tuned in, thank you. I've, I've enjoyed this conversation and I've gotten a lot more out of it. I think more than some of my students will. Uh, we've got a lot of work to do. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. Yours thank and HBCU love. Thank you so much, Charles. Thank you. You've been listening to I Love My HBCU Question Mark. Let's keep the conversation going as we share our stories and encourage more practical support of HBCUs, whilst, of course, holding each other accountable. Don't forget to follow and subscribe for the latest episodes. Until next time, love and lift your HBCU.